All right. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for braving uh, the Arctic tundra to come out here. I'm Nathaniel Peters. I'm the director of the Morningside Institute. Now in our fifth year of operation, Morningside brings scholars and students together to examine human life beyond the classroom and to consider its deepest questions through the life of New York City. One of the main tracks of our programming over these years has been living the core which helps students see the authors and themes that they encounter in Columbia's core curriculum as vital and vibrant with insights accumulated over millennia that might help them organize a good life today. In 2019, as part of that series and in honor of the centenary of Columbia's Contemporary Civilization course, we hosted a lecture with Ava Braun, the legendary professor from St. John's College on whether the phrase great books has any determinate meaning. The next day we had a symposium for faculty with Ms. Braun and it became clear in the course of our conversation that the obvious next step and next question to visit was why it is that we should read great books. What the justification is in an increasingly busy and diverse university for liberal education programs like those at St. John's or Columbia, or for major tracks like Notre Dame's program in liberal studies or Yale's directed studies program. Of course, if that's 2019, uh, 2020 and 2021 were not auspicious years for convening lectures and symposia, but they did bring us two excellent books on liberal education and the intellectual life, both from Princeton University Press Zena Hitz's Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of the Intellectual Life, and Roosevelt Montas's Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. So once we had COVID sufficiently behind us, we thought that the perfect way to explore why and how we should read great texts would be to host a conversation between Roosevelt and Zena, since they're not only great advocates for, but also I think great examples of living the examined life well. Both Roosevelt and Zena offer critiques of prestige-seeking and wealth-seeking in higher education, but I would be remiss if I failed to mention that Princeton University Press is offering a special 30% off discount code. If you buy their books through Princeton's website, a discount code, I might add, that is greater than what you can get on Amazon. Um, more information on that is at the registration table at the back if you really enjoy this and want to explore their work further. So let me now introduce our speakers and then hand the floor over to our moderator for the evening. Zena Hitz is a tutor in the Great Books program at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, which is also her alma mater. She's the author of, she's also the author in addition um, to the book she'll discuss tonight of A Philosopher Looks at the Religious Life, which is forthcoming next month from Cambridge University Press. Roosevelt Montas is senior lecturer at Columbia Center for American Studies and director of its Freedom and Citizenship Program, which introduces low-income high school students to the Western political tradition through the study of foundational texts. From 2008 to 2018, he was director of Columbia Center for the Core Curriculum. To help direct the conversation between them, we have as our moderator, Emmanuel Sada, professor of French and history and director of the Center for French and Francophone Studies, who also recently served as chair of Columbia's Contemporary Civilization course. Thank you, Zena, Roosevelt, and Emmanuel for being here with us this evening. Thanks to you all for joining us. Welcome. 
Thank you very much, Nathaniel, for this uh, very generous introduction. And thank you to Roosevelt and Zina for two wonderful books. I strongly recommend reading them. They're both um, entertaining, as an extent, but also uh, they take you in very deep directions. Um, so both of your books are in a large part autobiographical, right? That is quite how your life was changed uh, in many different ways and often very similar ways to uh, how your life was changed by uh, reading great books. So um, in a way, I would like you to explain to us why you wrote this book. Why did you feel that you needed to share this experience with the audience? Who are you trying to persuade, right? Who are you trying to convince that they should uh, uh, read those, those great books? And how do you share this experience, right? Uh, I go back to this later, but it's a very personal experience. So how do you share that with other people in your books? Uh, Rizal, sure, sure. Um, thank you, Nathaniel, for the introduction and for um, putting these events together. I, I first want to say, just I, I feel a shrinking feeling being here. I, I feel humbled. Something like there, mentors and colleagues, teachers, students, friends here, and uh, it's a very strange feeling to to be here. Thank you all for being here. Um, for your interest in this topic. As Nathaniel said, I, I was director of the Center for the Core Curriculum for 10 years. That's uh, an administrative um, position in the college. And I oversaw kind of the, the running of the core uh, while teaching the core. Um, the core is so central to sort of the life of the college, the alumni life, the community. And it brought that position brought me into contact with so many different constituencies that cared about the core. I myself ended up in that position because my own sort of intellectual formation was so deeply shaped by the core. Um, as an undergraduate, I really made sense of my life and sorted out a sense of myself, a sense of who I was in the world, a sense of what this world is I had come into. And I came into this world of Columbia higher education, what can you say, very green, very unprepared, very without much context in which to understand. And, and those books gave me that context. Um, and uh, I, I worked in the core and taught in the core following something like a calling rather than just a job. I, I was not interested in any other administrative job. I was not interested in any other kind of um, intellectual pursuit and that position I think is what introduced me to the debates, to the politics, to the status of this curriculum in American higher education. One of the things that was persistently obvious to me is that in part because of our political environment, in part because of the sort of intellectual development of the academy, People were very um, sort of ham-fisted in the way that they defended the curriculum. There was a kind of defensiveness, um, a kind of reluctance to say, these books are worth your time, and this is why. Um, and I felt that quite quite pervasively in, in my position as head administrator of the court. Um, as, I, as, as my tenure in that position came to a close, 
I began to itch for the opportunity to kind of say my piece, to uninhibitedly from the heart and the mind, of course, <laughs> um, say why I thought that this tradition and this kind of education was so critical, was so important um, to every student, but especially for students like me, um, students who came from what one might call like marginalized or under-resourced um, backgrounds, underprivileged, certainly. It seemed to me that students like me were often steered away from this kind of study. They were steered away from this kind of civic and intellectual preparation, this, this kind of education that so powerfully equips you for political, civic, intellectual agency. And um, it had always been a special sort of, with special zeal, I held the idea that this education could be made available and, um, and that people with backgrounds like mine should be encouraged to pursue this kind of education. So those were the motivations that that, that came to, to writing the book. And, and as I, you know, when I was director of the core, <clears throat> I spoke a lot about liberal education on the court, but I, I never talked about my life. I never talked about kind of biographical, the, the, the ways that this had been, was personal for me. And, and when I came down to write a book, I, it was, it sort of became evident to me that I was gonna have to write from the first person and that I was going to have to use, make a case that wove together serious reflection on the way that, that, that these books had, had shaped my inner and outer life. Yes, I, I think that um, I too, there's a lot that's common between most of mine is also some differences, but the common thing is that I too was very much shaped by my undergraduate education. Um, it was transformative for me. Um, and I, I had a couple of other formative experiences which shaped the book that I talked about at the beginning where um, I had this, this formative liberal arts experience. I had this a beautiful, um, immature bookworm intellectual heritage, heritage of arguing and reading and thinking about things for no reason, for no professional reason. And then I, I went to graduate school in classical philosophy and became a research professor um, and was always trying over the years in different ways to find my own way of doing that, a way that was authentic, that captured something of who I was, that captured that liberal arts background. And um, I found a variety of challenges, which eventually became so, so daunting, so dispiriting, um, that I left the profession for a time. And I spent three years in an um, austere, beautiful um, Catholic religious community in rural Canada. And when I was there, in a way, it was the perfect place. Madonna House, you should go there if you want to go to the perfect place. The one thing that was missing for me was a real robust intellectual community or a place, an outlet for me to, to use my mind. So I found myself forced to think from the ground up, really, about what kind of thing that I loved doing. It was a part of who I was really mattered for anybody. What kind of argument would I make to a group of ordinary people that this was something worth doing? 
Um, and also at the same time, trying to work out for myself how I was supposed to put all of these elements of my life together. So the culmination of that was my I deciding it was time to leave the community, come back to St. John's to teach, where I've been ever since. And when I came back, uh, you know, a community like that is is like its own world. It's, it's, uh, um, you you lose touch with what's going on in, in the outside world in all kinds of ways. So I was kind of readjusting to things, and you, I saw things with fresh eyes in a way because I've been away for a while. And of course, since I'd been gone, the, the smartphone had taken over. This was like the year I was gone between sort of 2011 and 2014. So the smartphone had taken over everything, and education and universities seemed to be in a kind of in, more intense crisis than I remember. So I'd had problems that I had struggled with in my previous career, but somehow it was worse. And part of what also resonated with me about what Roosevelt was saying is that there was a real lack of confidence among the, my friends and colleagues who were teaching philosophy or literature or what have you, just a sense that they couldn't really defend what they were doing. But maybe it wasn't really worth it and that there were other things that were really worth doing that they weren't doing. That uh, they ought to be doing something more political, they ought to be doing something more social, they ought to be doing something more relevant um, to the crisis of the time. And at that point in my life, even though I, had, I, I understand that, that condition extremely well, I was in it for a time. At, at that point, I, I saw that this was not quite right. And um, so I, and I was reading also these education magazines and you know, it was we called it then the crisis in the humanities. And it's every magazine, the crisis in the humanities yesterday. And no one, no one said anything like what I thought he said, I would just read these articles and just be so discouraged. Uh, and actually, since since Nathaniel mentioned the brands, this is actually true. That I, I went down to the old St. John's Spectacle Common, which is very beautiful. It doesn't exist anymore. It was very beautiful. And, you know, Miss Brand is sitting there and said, you know, you've worked a lot of education. Have you ever read anything that said something like this or this or this? And she was like, you know, you know you're just going to have to write it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> So I started to write uh, first a short piece and then a longer piece and then the book. And I think for me, on the one hand, making it personal as a way of communicating clearly the grounds of the judgments that I was making in a way that seemed to me appropriate in liberal education. That's one of the things that we do in liberal education is we make judgments that aren't just, they're not just opinions, they're not random free-floating thoughts, they're judgments that we make on the basis of something, and that something is something that someone else could see. They could come to a different judgment, they could see something else that ought to change your judgment, whatever. I wanted to put that, I wanted to communicate as a, as a free person to other free people in a liberal way. Um, and so it, that was on the one hand, it was because of what had happened in my life that I had seen things this way, and I suppose it was also true that um, the classics of this kind of genre, so I think of Leisure and the Basis of Culture, Joseph Keeper, um, or even The Intellectual Life by Serge Lange, they're, um, they're written in a very lofty seat. So it's, you know, Herr Professor or the equivalent. <laughs> and, you know, it's the authority of the professor telling you why these things matter. And I thought to myself, well, 
I don't know that anyone has that authority anymore. I don't know that this role exists anymore. And I certainly don't have it. Whoever might have it, I don't have it. So if people are going to listen to me, it will be because I'm I'm walk I'm walking with them and showing them the things that I saw along the way, and and they can be free at any point to to say, well, you know, I I wouldn't have put things that way, or like I wouldn't have I wouldn't have interpreted that experience the way that she did. Uh, so it was it was very much an attempt to to respect my readers and to be honest and authentic about where my thoughts were coming from. And I'll also just say this as a kind of opening thank you also to Nathaniel Beck um, and to all of you here. When I when I was first writing, and up until the time when I think the book really hit um, the market, I thought I was the only person in the world who thought this story. <laughs> With the only exception, my, my friend Anika Prather, I, I met her while the book was still in print, uh, who's here. And you know, I heard her talk about something. I was like, "Oh my gosh, there's one other person." <laughs> but so, so coming, meeting Roosevelt and and all the people that Nathaniel put together in this class gathering, um, and hearing from all the people who read the book and who for whom it resonates, like it's meant so much to me. Um, and I'm very happy to be here to, uh, with these fellow travelers. Talk to, talk to you. Thank you. Um, a question about um, what is a great book, um, and um, how you recognize one when you see one, right? The, uh, one of the one of the reasons I think that some of our students have found a little reluctant to adhere to the project is that, that, that this has been decided before me. There is someone puts this on the canon. There is a um, structure of that textuality, people quote each other, these people speak to each other, and they don't speak to me, right? So I wanted you to tell us a little more about that uh, pushback against reading red books, which you, I'm sure, uh, have encountered many times, that you speak also about in your book, and so in both your books, right? Um, Nina, you speak about the, uh, the how to deflect the specter of elitism. Um, Roosevelt, to uh, you speak about what I would call a some kind of democratic promise that is associated with uh, liberal arts uh, education. You mentioned on page 12 uh, that the great books subvert the hierarchies of social privilege that keeps those who are down down. And so I wanted you to tell us, and it's a, it's a question that, you know, trying to, I'm sure there's so many questions I'm trying to put them together uh, in a, in a to, uh, combine them together, but really, like you know, there's something in the great book that goes beyond this history of inclusion and exclusion. Uh, something that goes beyond social privilege. Something that goes beyond um, the canon. And at the end of the day, um, I think it would be very interesting to do this uh, to do this experiment here. I think we all, I mean. Here because I suppose it's a self selected object, too. But we would come up with, you know, I think maybe not criteria, not objective criteria, but the list of books we would all agree, oh, those are great books, of course, right? And so, can you tell us a little more about that? How you, you know, how, what is your thought about what a great book is? And now, if you want to start, sure. Um, I, I think to some extent, and this connects to also something Roosevelt said earlier, we have been a victim of some. 
the previous generation's marketing, it was a, there's a there's a list of books that somehow something fit. And I I think it's um, and then there's this this endless and endlessly tedious debate what should be on the list. And for me, it's been helpful to think about this conversation that the books are in. So there's books that talk about one and books which have meant things to people through many generations and in many contexts and in many walks of life. Um, what I say, I mean, I, I feel like a great book in its most fundamental way is a book that is a teacher, that is a book that, you know, you can, stands on as something which you can educate, something which is open to multiple rereadings, something which if you sit around a cinema table with it, you won't be able to tell what the students or your, your seminar partner is going to see. It's, it, it's, if you let things go, which is the tradition of the great book seminar, right? then you, you actually just really can't predict what people will find in this piece of the Iliad or, or, um, or what have you. That's, that's one thing I would say. So the sense of the tradition and it being a living tradition, people are continuing to contribute to. So you too can read a great book and reflect on it, integrate it into your life and, and be treated freely as a free person. So reject things you want to reject, keep the things you want to keep, creatively reimagine it. Um, and we have so many examples of doing you know, huge, incredible lists of post-colonial literature of people who read the classics and they made it into something different. Eric Walcott, Homer, um, or you know, Chinua Achebe and Aeschylus. Um, Every single um, figure that I've been able to find in the Black American tradition, they've all meditated on some classics and ingested it and made it there. Uh, so I, I try to tell stories like that also, and stories about what the Great Books program came from, which was not actually, you know, um, in, originally, I suppose it came from aristocratic schooling, you know, the, the kind you might have find in England. But the movement was about. Um, translating those books, mass publish, publication of those books, and getting them into everyone's hands. Working people, moms, people who stayed at home, elderly people. That's that's the great books. Um, it's it's taking the knowledge which belongs to the powerful and giving the power that the powerful evidently think it had uh, to a broader. One thing about great books is that there are too many. It's not, um, we're not going to run out of uh, books, which is why maybe people fetishize the licks. Because if you are going to expose, say, undergraduates 2021, 20, 2022, 2023 to 10 or 15 books over the course of of, of a semester or two, I guess, uh, two semesters like we do in the, in the MCC at Columbia, you have to, you have to make some choices. Um, and I think that those choices need to emerge from conversation, debate, um, deliberation, and that those choices are always provisional. Those choices are always tentative. Um, there is no ultimate list of great books. Um, 
what one can and and you know you mentioned some of the sort of characteristics there's a kind of like a a family of features that tends to accrue around around certain books like uh, you know the complexity and and to me the the most sort of telltale um, feature is their capacity to speak about fundamental human questions, their capacity to illuminate the human experience for people from really different backgrounds, historical positioning, socioeconomic, ethnic, um, national origins. That is, you know, when I read Dante, Dante is speaking in a particular historical moment, caught in a, in a particular sort of theological, political, historical situation. And that is all over the Divine Comedy. But it is not those things that make Dante great. It is the fact that Dante can speak something that feels vitally alive and important to me, a 21st century unbelieving Dominican immigrants to New York. Um, so there is a capacity to sort of transcend the historical conditions of their creation, rooted from there, but going beyond there. You know, Toni Morrison's life transformative fiction, it's not because the presence, the importance of the African-American and the experience of American slavery in the novels, it is because that's not what makes those novels great. It's the fact that those works can make that experience vivid, alive, real to people who don't have a connection, a kind of historical connection to that experience. Um, there is a great reluctance in our sort of intellectual milieu and among faculty to sort of put their money, put their, their commitment behind a hierarchy that says these books we think are really different than other books. These books are more worth your time than these other books. Um, and that seems to me to be a sort of a symptom of a deep epistemological crisis in the academy. Um, again, we don't need to imagine that these are some ultimate final to be revered by the mere fact of our enshrining them in a, in a list. They are they need to be alive. I always tell students don't don't take don't take my word or anybody's word or what's a great book to you. And, and if this book doesn't speak to you, move on, read the next one. Um, and you may come back to it. I remember the first time that I read, so in my, my freshman year of Columbia, the syllabus at that time ended with Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. And my Lincoln professor was a veteran, kind of a legend of Columbia, Wallace Gray, did his own modifications of the of the syllabus. 
One of the things he did was have us read the Brothers Karamazov so instead of Crime and Punishment. Crime and Punishment is already really long for a good long book. Brothers Karamazov, about another 300 pages. Um, so one of the things that happened is that we ended up not kind of finishing the syllabus. We didn't get to Virginia Woolf. But I heard all about it from my peers. So that summer, summer of the first year, I read Virginia Woolf through the lighthouse on my own. And it was a big book. What's, what's the big, I don't, don't get it. Like, what's the big deal? It's not <laughs> And then some years later, when I was in graduate school and teaching literature humanities for the first time, I read The Lighthouse to teach it. And it was the most powerful experiences within a text that I've ever had. It, it just floored me. It, it, I, even when I talk about it, I, all I want to do is like stop whatever I'm doing, go pick up the book and read some of it. Um, but when I read it the first time, it, it didn't do that for me. And, and that's, you know, so don't, I, sometimes people ask me, you know, I've been going around talking about the classics and the canon, like people come up and say, oh, I, you know, I, I didn't have this kind of education. What should I read? And the first thing I say is like, don't feel like this is a chore, and, uh, a, you know, that this is like eating vegetables or something, like the are deficient because you don't have this and this is, uh, follow the, the thing that 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 has power in your experience of reading it, um, and of course, read it in a group and talk about it because it's we talk about reading, but it's really it's really grappling with with the words, and the way to do that is by talking about them. Thank you. So actually, my, my next question is exactly about that uh, the the relationship to the text via the mediation of other people by right? looking at the text in a conversation with other people. And actually, it is not a dimension that is very much developed in either of your books, right? You speak about, uh, Dina, I think you speak about the expression, you use the expression, the cultivation of the inner life. And you also speak at length about the fact that reading those great books is a refuge from the world. And Roosevelt, you also speak about inward education you actually use this beautiful phrase this sentence is wonderful sentence about Augustine right um look you turn me you turn my attention back to myself this is a title of the chapter of Augustine and it appears very early in the book right that is this for you is the in a way the uh, initial gesture of it right to be turned back to enjoy yourself so uh paradoxically in your books uh, the classroom is not very present, right? I mean, Colombia is very present in your book, but more in the hallways and in the lines to sign up for classes. And the, the classroom or the office hours, Professor Gray, but the classroom itself, right? The, uh, is not very much there. And you do mention a few times your uh, the classroom as where you teach, right, as a professor. And 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 you know, I haven't seen the classroom very much, and I haven't. Seen, and so um, that's something I find very interesting because it looks like it's. I mean, in your account, right? This is experience is almost a solitary experience, right? You spoke about the teachers, the book of teachers themselves, right? So I'm, actually, I was not surprised. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing with the classroom, but it is a relationship you have with the books, right? And Lisbeth, uh, you quote this amazing passage in Augustine's Confession about kids who learn to speak without the grown ups telling them, right? They, 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 they. <laughs> For me, it was very much, uh, uh, you know, indicative of how you think about the relationship with the books. Actually, you don't need the mediation of adults. So you don't need teachers, right, to get to great books. And you, 
at least reading you, you don't, you, the, the, the mediation of others is very limited. So I want you to tell us a little more about that. Yeah, yeah. And so because there is a participle kind of, you know, dimension of this great book, you go to you as students, right? And then uh, as teachers, as, as instructors, as professors. And the other thing that, you know, obviously one want to mean that a lot of our students, many, uh, you know, me too, <laughs> and it's all against is this idea that, you know, those great books are about a uh, motivation of the inner life and not a, and maybe that's because I'm a problem, I've been teaching which is really about, you know, the communities, political organizations, how we relate to each other, right? So in the book, I mean, it is there, obviously, in, in all the readings we have, Obviously, this is you know also about others, but there is something here. I mean, you don't develop at all the political dimension of this book, or not very much, let's say. And you know, the students here. I mean, I understand. I mean, Zina, that's very, very important in your book. You say, uh, you know, don't waste your time. <laughs> of course, trying to be in a world that doesn't always, that is not going to cater to your needs, to your inner needs, to your um, to your needs as human beings, right? So, and, and you're going to find your refuge to some extent in books, right? But but what would you say to the student who says, no, I want to read these books because actually I want to I want to solve climate change, problems of climate change. And I can do that as a scientist, but also I need to understand how you move the world, how you persuade people, how you, you change the coordinates of politics. And so a lot of our students here are interested in changing the world. And not just in the cultivation of self, which is a you know a central dimension of the world arts. But can you tell us a little more about uh, those, uh, those those two points? So both the you know the mediation of others when you read those books, and also what you can do politically. Yeah. It looks like going from the inner life to the outer. Yeah. To start. Uh, it's a, such an interesting observation that you make about the relative paucity of the classroom in my in the book and in my thinking about it um and um i'm gonna hypothesize right now but uh, what why that is i hadn't I hadn't thought about it before um obviously there is something inchoate spontaneous unfolding kind of unformed about what happens in the classroom that's when my development happened in, in that first year um, especially in that first year. Um, and that's where like, to the lighthouse came alive for me. It was in the context of having these conversations. Um, so it's very much present in, in my experience, um, perhaps not so easily represented, perhaps not so easily, you know, accounted for. Um, I do remember specific discussions that were happening both as a student and as a, and as a teacher, um, particular things that simply, Lab onto your mind, it would just keep generating things for you as, as you age and mature. Um, yet, even though this kind of birthing process happens in the context of conversation and exchange, and I, and I think that that is absolutely critical, I, I think it, it cannot be replaced, it cannot be dispensed with. Um, there is another side to the coin, which is that. The transformation, the revelation, the growth, the insight 
is always individual and personal. There's a, there's a line in, in, in Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of Waldo Emerson's essay, where he says that nothing is a last sacred but the integrity of your own mind. There is a sense in which the truths, the insights, the value that the liberal education, the great books um, convey has, cannot be given to you, cannot be handed to you, cannot be told to you. A kind of awakening, a kind of opening has to happen within yourself. Another Emerson quote, um, he says that kind of the great truth of existence cannot are guarded by one stern truth, which is they cannot be had secondhand. Uh, they're like revelation, they cannot be had secondhand. So there is this intensely personal, transformative, um, experiential thing that happens with, with the education. For it to happen, you do need that kind of cultivation, you need, do need that exchange. Um, now, a, a word about the, kind of the second part of your question. Um, Gandhi's nephew, one of Gandhi's nephews wrote to him about India and sort of worried about the intractable problems both internal in India and, and, and this is before independence and, and of, of British imperialism in India. And Gandhi said to him, you know, don't, don't worry about India, apply it all to yourself. In your liberation is the liberation of India. Um, so there is something about yourself and the self being ground zero for social change. Um, it's not that it stays there, but I think that we, you know, there's, there's something very easy and very facile about simply looking out and pointing to the problems and either denouncing or condemning or, 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 you know, agonizing over them. Much harder is to examine one's own personal and individual relationship to that process. So, you know, if, you, if you're concerned about climate change, you have to be concerned about how you get from one place to another. You have to be concerned about how you feed yourself. You have to be concerned about, you know, the electricity and the energy that we consume, you cannot simply sort of externalize the problem. So it, it seems to me that this kind of inner reflection and that, that, that the self as the starting point for social change is, uh, you know, it's something that, that this kind of education points to. Um, and I guess the last thing I want to say about that it, it is that it is, it is liberal education because it is not deployed in the service of a particular predetermined outcome. Um, and while the desire to improve the world and help the world and advance social justice and heal the environment are all things that I'm committed to and that are worthwhile. The fundamental commitment of the life of the mind is to discovery of truth. And to the extent that is subordinated to any other end, I think we've missed the mark of liberal education. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
I think my book, and I realized this uh, sometime after it came out, in a certain way, it's emphasis is a bit distorted because of the rhetorical move I felt obliged to make. So everything I was reading and hearing was, it's going to you know, give you critical thinking skills and, you know, Silicon Valley loves philosophy majors and, you know, you can change the world and question authority and fight for justice. And so I had this, I suppose, you know, I spent a lot of my um, life uh, reading uh, Plato and Aristotle, especially Plato's Republic, which many people here might think it's Columbia. <laughs> They're supposed to all have read, right? Um, and there, you know, the, the challenge at the beginning where, you know, it's, well, does justice matter for its own sake? Well, strip everything away from a just man and, and see when, whether it does anything for I think I had in mind something like that. I was interested in what happens if you take away everything. And that's why there's so many examples of, you know, prisoners, people who um, were consigned to Siberia for decades, um, people who lived under these incredibly dark circumstances. Because I thought, well, if, if it matters for them, which I think it really evident that it's kind of intellectual life and liberal arts are kind of luminous in those circumstances uh, and beautiful, then, then I think that's a case that it really matters for its own sake. So I was doing that on the one hand. Um, and on the other, I have a kind of apocalyptic imagination. So uh, I mean, I struggle with it, but I have it. So I, I'm all, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to tell you all my prepper habits and stuff, but, but I think I wanted to, you know, um, part of what I don't, I dislike about, again, this, the, the educational adver the advertising for education that we have, marketing for education we have, is that it's, it's, it's just um, relentlessly upbeat. Like, you're going to succeed. You're going to be a leader. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. We're going to change everything. We're going to transform. We're going to do this. And I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe you will. I hope, I hope you do. But um, what about failure? What about catastrophe? And what about um, you know these these terrible systematic injustices? Which you know I also have spent a lot of time thinking about sort of the middle of the 20th century in Europe. You know, it's kind of catastrophic time. You think about that, and you think, well, you know, these people thought that they had 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 things settled in 19th century Europe, 19th century, like they've got it all. And suddenly catastrophe just overtakes them. So I, I wanted to capture that also. But I also really wanted to support what Roosevelt said, which is that, so I actually, I think it's very useful. First of all, for the class, I, classrooms are essential. A community is essential. It's, it's very, very challenging to um, pick up these books, especially now when, when reading skills are kind of declined. Pick up these books and read them on your own. It's gonna, for most people, cause I think nothing but discouragement. You need a friend, you need a group, um, you need some people to talk to. It doesn't have to be a formal classroom, it doesn't have to have credits, you've got to have people to talk to. And that's also when you see the greatness of the books because you see all of the different um, questions and lines of thought and insights that other people can have, and it shapes who you are. And I agree with Roosevelt that in a way it's you know, you come in with your own questions and your own experience of the book. It opens up into the classroom, and then at the end of the at the end of the class, once again, it goes back into the individual. So it's but the community is very very important, but there is a way in which it begins and ends 
for the individual. And also to support Roosevelt that liberal education in a way it's about um, in, the, in its practice in the classroom and in its thoughts about professional training of the future or what it's good for, it leaves the answers up to you. Right? I mean, so, you know, you, you, you receive this education and, and you decide what the most urgent question is that needs to be addressed. You know, you're, you're, you're not meant to just coast along to whatever slogan, whatever thing is going on at the time, whatever thing seems most important. You want to, it's a, so for me, I guess the way I would put it most strongly would be, I actually think that solitude and the inner life are, are for the sake of engagement. They're for the sake of being in the world, <laughs> but um, it, they're essential resources and, and you have to, it has to be left open what that means. Or otherwise I think you're not really thinking of it as being something shared by a, a free community. You're thinking of it theoretically in, in a way that's manipulative, in a way that's controlling. Yeah. And uh, I think both of us see that, that you, you, it's, it's up to you, students. It's a difference between liberal education and indoctrination. Um, liberal education lives in the questions, not in the answers. Even when the answers are good, you know, I, I, I want my students to under to take on certain political commitments that I have. But the point of my doing liberal education is not to get them to those commitments. It's to give them tools and clarity and the capacity to make their own commitments. Yeah, the, the, I don't another question and and I'll be asking very quickly so that we can move on to the um, QA and show the tons of questions. Uh, it's a more personal question, both for you and for me. I am fascinated by um, faith uh, because I don't have it. <laughs> so, to some extent, I wish I had it. So, uh, and 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 you never ever make the case in your book that faith is, or that that you you don't make this explicit connection between faith and and uh, kind of spiritual inner life and the great books yet. You use metaphors like uh, the United speak about um, about redemption, and there's not even the word salvation. Uh, <laughs> you speak about this book, and I am intrigued by this. I'm very intrigued, and and like uh, about this uh, this this way of reading as a form of spirituality, as you know, as connected. I mean, it's completely following up with I think from what you was saying in you know, the previous question, right? Like, the, that it is there is a spirit there so spirituality with the dimension of the exercise right it's a, it's a spiritual exercise but also it's an opening to a different world i think it actually um it connects very nicely from my point of view with the previous question because the way that i think about it and it's also it's another reason why I wanted it to be autobiographical. Like, well, this is who I am. So this is where I'm coming from. You know, you you might not agree, but just so you know, I'm not going to push it on you. I'm going to tell you that's what I'm actually. I think that um, the the practice of reading great books and having conversations is ascetical. So it involves making yourself a discipline. Doing something you don't want to do. I, 
I've been reading these books for, I don't know how many, I don't want to tell you how many years. <laughs> I, when I have to sit down and do my seminar reading, it's a painful, yeah, I think, oh, man, I've got that Aquinas reading. Oh, <laughs> it's painful. And then you've got to keep reading it and you've got to think about it. And you have to push out the thoughts that are not there. And then, of course, when you're thinking, you're, the things that you wanted to be there, the things that you wanted to be true are kind of collapsing under the weight of the argument, the better that you listen to it. And then you go into the classroom and no one says the thing that you think is true and, and that there's someone who's really annoying who has it exactly right. You know, it's like the worst is that you're like, oh, if only it wasn't you who said the exact right thing. So this honestly, this is what life in a in a in a Christian religious community is like. It's like that. And and I don't want to make it sound like it's all suffering because of course it's through that. You're opening up space for something else to happen. So you're 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 pushing aside distractions for understanding and insight to take place, or you're pushing aside annoyance so that you're working with a common project uh, with this other human being. And that kind of human connection you have in the classroom, or you have through all the books. I mean, you're connecting with human beings at every time and space and seeing the world through their eyes. And that I think is a very simple but very fundamental spiritual experience. Um, so maybe that's too basic or something, but that, that's that's how I would put it in connection with the previous question also. An interesting thing that's happened happened with my, with my book. One is um, religious people have loved the book. Um, it has kind of spoken to people so like, you know, Christian colleges, Catholic universities, people of faith have been very enthusiastic about the book. And I'm not a person of faith. I'm not a believer. Um, I'm some kind of non-theist. Um, similarly, political conservatives have loved the book um, and have received it very well. And I'm not a political conservative in my so. Um, so that's been kind of interesting and intriguing, um, and you know, but but this question of religion, religion is preoccupied with fundamental questions of and and, and kind of the mystery of consciousness and uh, really at bottom inexplicable fact of us being here. There's something just fundamentally mysterious and and kind of irreducible to understanding about the phenomenal, the, the, the fact of our existence. Um, and those questions are at bottom um, of kind of the religious life and religious and, and the religious impulse. And I think that those questions are also at bottom of the intellectual life. Um, they meet in, 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 in some search for a depth, a kind of presence and awe at the fact of our being here. Um, so, you know, even though I'm not a believer, I'm, I'm sort of like a religious person um, by uh, um, disposition, by, by temperament or something. I, you know, I, I, I love ritual. I, 
have a weakness for asceticism. Um, but it's not, it's not in the context of a faith. Thank you very much uh, for this wonderful, wonderful remarks. And we have uh, until eight, right? We have about 30 minutes of uh, questions. I think you have, someone wants to uh, ask a question. Should we to the mic? Yeah, sure. So if you have any questions that you'd like to put to any of our panelists to the moderator, please go ahead and, and use the mic. Um, you know, identify yourself if you're a student. Tell us where you're coming from, what you're studying. Um, and you know, if, if the line begins to form, that's uh, that's totally fine. But with the mic, that way we can all hear you. Thanks. Hi there. Thank you. Thank you both for uh, for the excellent reflections. I look forward to reading both your books. My name is Nicholas Abushdid. I I went to Notre Dame. I studied in the Great Books Program. They're called Program of Liberal Studies. One issue that came up a lot in our program, and I'm sure you both have experience with is the tension between the values, diverse viewpoints, both within the texts and among people in the seminary, and the importance of having commitments um, in order to go deep in the conversation. Um, or even you know, that tension being played out between the texts themselves having different uh, commitments and or even views of truth. And so then if the if the goal of education is to get a truth, well then what are we even talking about? Uh, what, what is this truth? I mean, is it the correspondence of the mind to reality? Are we imposing uh, a lens on reality? There's all these different uh, questions even at the fundamental level. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts as to, you know, especially in that seminar context, in that communal context of, of learning um, on this tension between kind of the beauty of having different perspectives that illuminate our, our experience and also the kind of relevance and insights that having commitments, be they religious um, or even just humanistic commitments, uh, has for really going deep with these books. Thank you. I, I think it's your turn to start. <laughs> uh, he, he put me in the middle. No, there's no turns anymore. Okay. Um, I, you know, I find this tension for undergraduate education. I, I hear more about it than I actually experience it. Um, I find it, I mean, I, I don't understand how it's possible. Every year, I'm honestly knocked over in shock. But my students, who at St. John's, it's a, as a secular university in Columbia, saying, I, I, that should really be brought out that we teach at the last really secular books programs that remain uh, that are flourishing in some way. Um, and to me, it's so important, not just because I like um, to mix it up, but because of I see, I mean, it's particularly intense this year. I'm teaching Bible, sophomore seminar, and, and Christian theology. And there are believers in the class, and there are people who think Christianity is bad. Uh, and there are people in between. And they have had to find ways to communicate with one another. And I swear, those are not superficial conversations. They, they get to what is, in fact, it forces people out of superficial conversations. The believers might be happy just to kind of repeat stuff from the categories and whatever, you know, and the, and the, um, the anti-religious people might be inclined just to have their, talking, their own talking points, but they've got to talk to each other and they have to find something deeper 
so I, um, gosh, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I, I, I think that it's true that a person who, if, if he become a, a professional thinker of some kind, or, or if your vocation is to really think about something, you've got to make commitments, you've got to go into things. Even then, the, the being forced to communicate with people who don't necessarily have those commitments is so healthy. It's so good for you. So I, I think part of what causes the apparent tension is there is a bit of something I feel like I saw a lot of in normal schools. You're like, okay, time for class discussion. What do people think? I think this, I think this, I think this, I think this. It's just this like survey of opinions. Now that's with time. Um, but if, you, if, you're, if you're forcing people to talk about a deep question with one another, I think it, it helps you all. I think the question of diversity of viewpoints is, it has to be central to the front. That's why you want to do it in a group. That's why you have to do it in conversation. And that's why, that's why a kind of ideological conformity is, is, is deadly to education. Today, this afternoon, I had a, a conversation with a former student. She graduated a few years ago, and it's now congressional age. Um, she was talking to me from the, from the Senate building. I, I felt very important. <laughs> and she told me about a student who had taken the same class she took with me. I, I teach an, an American political thought class for uh, sort of an upper, upper, upper level class. And she had taken this class and she met another student who had taken the class a few years before who was also working in DC. And they kind of met each other and, you know, oh, we went, both went to Columbia, we took this class, et cetera. And they decided to go together to the congressional baseball game, friends of baseball game, and Republicans and Democrats play each other. And um, the student I was speaking with today went and sat where the other student was. And she said, like, after a few minutes there, I see that there are all these people wearing manga hats and, and slogans and T-shirts. And, and, and I asked, she told me, I asked, the other student, you know, what, what's all this? And she said, oh, I'm sorry, I, I'm actually a Republican. Um, and the reason I tell that story is because it's very hard to be a Republican in the Columbia campus. And this student kept it hidden from her peers and in class. And um, there's something wrong if, if people can't feel that they can be Republicans in our social environment. Um, so I have sort of made it part of the mission of how I teach to create a context in which people are comfortable with minority opinion. And that's, that's very hard, but it's, it has become increasingly clear to me that a big part of my job as a teacher as a discussion leader is to create that space, to create the space in which people can walk out of the closet. And that means creating a, an environment where people trust each other, where people are kind of generous to each other intellectually. Um, on truth, I want to say something about, about truth. I, I, I've never encountered a theory of truth that was satisfying to me. 
that seem to kind of get at it. It always seems to be, you know, it's like a a shirt that the sleeves are too short. Like it just doesn't get doesn't get there all the way. It doesn't does, doesn't cover. It's deficient in some way. I have also never heard a challenge to truth that is convincing. Um, okay, here I go. I'm not religious, but there's a, a verse. I I I did study. I did try being religious for a while. I read the, the Bible very intensely. Uh, Jesus says, "You shall know the truth." Is King James version. Holy Spirit authorized version. Uh, <laughs> you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's not that the truth will liberate you; is that the knowing of the truth will make you free. That there is a and, and that will make you free. There is a kind of transformation that happens with the knowledge of the truth. Um, and that, you know, there's something like that this thing, like you, you can't, you can't, uh, truth, you can't wrap your concept around it. Um, conceptualizing is, 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 is already born out of the ground, the premise of truth. Thinking is born, is, is happens in the, already within the soil of truth. So you can't quit thinking circumvent it and package it. And um, so, yeah, that's right. Hello, um, thank you very much. Uh, I really enjoyed the talk. Um, I've been recently reading a lot of Petrarca for, um, for one of my classes and he, he really loved people like St. Augustine and Cicero so much so that he uh, he called his copy of the confessions his friend and he would uh, he would write letters like dear cicero to socrates um and you know one thing that uh, one of you mentioned today you said that these books should be seen as teachers they can teach you something but for someone like petrarca who now we consider his work to be a part of the great you know maybe not great books but great poems right or great letters. Uh, he really saw books as like his friends. Um, and that made me consider do you, how, to what degree do you think part of the reason why there's been this backlash against the great books is because people are less encouraged to participate in the act of trying to create uh, great books or great literature or become great philosophers or great poets. Uh, nowadays, people are more encouraged to take on more sort of utilitarian, um, uh, you know, like going to STEM, right? Go to law school, pre-med. Uh, there's not as much encouragement to, the, first of all, there aren't, nowadays rhetoric isn't even a department in most schools. Children aren't really taught rhetoric. Back in the day, a lot of these people who wrote these great books, they were trained in rhetoric. The conventions, of, most people have no clue that there was such a thing as a convention of rhetoric. So I guess that's my question. How, to what degree do you think maybe part of the reason why people don't appreciate reading good books is because they don't write really, or they don't participate in the act of creation? You know, something about the, about a kind of an impoverished intellectual culture 
that doesn't value, doesn't appreciate the non-utilitarian goods. Is that is that a oxymoron? Non-utilitarian goods. You're the philosopher. Um, but you know, I, I guess it does seem to me that that we that that higher education and, and there are different trends, but the kind of overall trend is in, against non-utilitarian um, study, and that has to impact that the environment. There are counter trends. I mean, the existence of the court, of the um, existence of St. John's as an institution, and others. So there are there are. Zena's book is very focused on this on this um, on the value the importance and centrality of, of this way of being, this way of uh, thinking. Yeah, I, I, uh, I just think that one of the things that puzzles me a bit is when you have this first wave of mass literacy, mass education, or the first couple of ways, I can tell you, 100 years, you have tons of new writers, writers that we now think are great. Right, you know, so, you know, Baldwin, Morrison, Faulkner, all these people are from that, that democratization of the great books. So something's happened in the past little while that's um, removed that from you. I don't understand exactly what it is. Um, but it's, um, I think it probably has to do with the political and economic structures that we live in. I mean, you that, that was also a time of great liberation of working people um, and liberation also of you know, colonial countries, various marginalized peoples. That, the, a lot of literature got plugged into that. And the way things are now, it's, um, I'd say something like plutocracy. Um, a lot of the a lot of the structures I think are really directed at that. And you have sort of the worst of both worlds. You have the elite of the aristocracy without the without the sense that an aristocracy brings with it, you know, the sense of writing and the preservation of the past and so on. So that's just a little I, I wish I understood this better, but I, I think you're right that part of making the traditions alive is thinking of it as being continuing into the future. Uh, it's not just the canon, it's not a past thing. It's something which should be, we should be imagining it stretching in the future, but we have lost that bit of imagination. And I, I think that's really bad. I agree with you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. I just wanted to press the sort of annoying which books question. And I think it has a lot more import than uh, like one might initially think. I can certainly write to say that that debate in its current form is somewhat tedious, but I think uh, uh, that question becomes increasingly pressing the more one accepts these kinds of intellectual virtues that both of you are promoting, right? Like one can say in general terms that judgment is good, that, you know, uh, you have to start from the living tradition and so on and so forth, but questions about realization, like how, how those values are realized do come to press. As also particularly pressing given that the great books tradition is thought to be under some threat. So the kind of knee-jerk conservative response, 
Well, small c conservative response. Well, we don't need to answer the canon question. The canon exists ready made. One just has to implement it. I think the, the point of view of both of your books is like, clearly it's not ready made because something has to be said in defense of it, right? And so that naturally suggests that there are actually like substantive questions of the which books form to be answered, right? Not just in terms of the books to be selected, but also in terms of like the narrative framing or whatever. So I guess I just wanted to hear like how far we're supposed to go in this direction and you know, sound a note of agreement on the tedium of the question, but also sort of a dentist-like sense that it can't really be avoided. <laughs> can, can I ask to if Rita just clarify what you think the force of the which books? So is it is the question that there's a lot of books which are pretty good and maybe they should count, or is the is the question about the different global traditions or I think, I think like a way into the question is just to say, okay, great. I've read both the, I've read both of your books, right? I, mean, I in fact have one has read both of your books. Then the thought is, we agree that there are these intellectual virtues. We agree that we should be realized somehow in our educational institutions. How do we go about that? And then the thought is, it's a sort of general question. I mean, I think what I'm trying to say is the question is slightly more general than both of your kind of specifications, right? And this is why it might be approached we can approach it in abstraction from the more tedious which which text questions. And we're like, how, clearly we have there's some selection thing to be done. How do we approach that? I um I think of this as being a uh, institutional governance question. Um, I think old school. I think that the faculty should govern uh, these questions. I think the faculty is. Um, it's a, a body that changes over time. Uh, it's a body that can mature within itself. Um, and I think I think it's important in part because, because the choice is going to be to some extent arbitrary. In fact, very arbitrary given the number of the vast number of big books. I think it's crucial that it be driven by real intellectual zeal and enthusiasm that's coming from the teacher. Like there has to be a sense of, oh my gosh, you've got to read this book. Um, and not a, a the more bureaucratic sense of like, well, they're putting together a curriculum. We've got to look at this little that putting together like a chocolate box. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's really crucial. So that's that's just a procedural thought that you you if you're forming a community, if you're forming an institution, you know, you want. Um, the people who are responsible for the curriculum be the people who are teaching and people who and and who are under the obligation to continue to reflect about it, you know, to, to meet regularly, to modify it, to change it, to see whether it's working, to continue to read and think they need to have independent intellectual lives. They're, they're continuing to think about it. And new things are always coming in. Um, I think that's crucial. So I could say that much. One thing I love about the Columbia structure is that every three years, the Faculty of Literature Humanities and the Faculty of Contemporary Civilization get together to rethink the syllabus. Okay, these are the works that are there now. What do we want to change? What are the problems? What are the tensions? What doesn't work? What, what doesn't cohere well? What are we missing? And that is ongoing. I mean, the moment you're teaching a syllabus, you're thinking about what, what, how do we make it better? And then you go there with your ideas and it turns out that you're the only one that has that idea, those ideas and then well, some other people want to make it worse. Um, and sometimes they win the argument. 
yeah. <laughs> it's got to be like that. Um, but that commitment that we as a faculty are going to patch together some view that's defensible and that, that's alive, that, that somehow captures some sense of what we think matters. Uh, I think that, that that's crucial. Um, I know we're running out of time, but I want to say Jim Morello's joke. Um, Jim Morello, a longtime literature humanities professor and probably several times chair, used to say, used to point the fact that the literature humanities syllabus any given year has maybe 15 words that, that, that are read. If you look at the list of works that have been taught in literature humanities since it's founded in, in 1937, there's like 150, 170 works there, even though in a given year only 15 or so are taught. So he would say, if it's a canon, it's a loose canon. To foster a number of the class trainers have seen, and I now teach it in Notre Dame. And I want to press Dr. Montes on, on one thing you said. Um, I think it, I think you said that these when the book is proposed to a student, right? When the, the, the faculty and the institution set forth, these are the books you should read. Then it's very much a it's a take it or leave it kind of suggestion, you said, right? There will be experiences of one book really electrifies you and another doesn't quite land. But then you told that wonderful story of, of Virginia Woolf. And I want I want to press you of I, I think it really was. The authority of the institution and of your of your friends, the fact that you trusted these other people's judgment, that led you to say, "Well, let's give it a try," yeah. and then to give it a second try years later, yeah. and then begin to see. Yeah. So, really, I think what's at stake is this relationship between the, the freedom of liberal education and authority. Right? That there is a kind of proposing that we, as 17, 18 year olds, experience receive. And we can choose to take on trust what our teachers are telling us or not. But part of what you're, I think, both trying to say is that if we take it on trust, it can lead to great and beautiful things. So isn't isn't it something more than just a suggestion? This this proposing that a teacher yeah. makes to you. Certainly, um, I guess what I would say is that you you should not take the greatness of the book on my authority or the authority. Um, I think the fact that we put it there means you're going to read it and you, you signed up to study in this institution and to do this thing because you, you're, you're trusting that we're going to put something in front of you that's, that's worth your time. But it can't be that, that the meaning of the book for you, the thing that it does to you can't be contained there. But but certainly it's it's the, there is something about that authority. I, I, someone asked me once, you know, who, who, who should decide what the book should be? And nobody knows enough, really, to make a, a good choice. Nobody has read enough. Nobody has the, 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 the right context in which to make the decision. But a competent faculty of a university is about as good a body as there ever is going to be to collectively have the range and the exposure and the depth to propose something. Um, so that I think that authority does matter a lot.
Thank you. Uh, and thank you, Luke, because you set me up quite well. Uh, my name is Alex Quadrado. I'm in the Italian department here at Columbia. I teach literature humanities. Um, I'm about to finish my PhD this spring. I'm also going to give you more biographical information, but it'll make sense why. Um, but I want to go back to that Virginia Woolf moment. Um, so I'm thinking about, so I went to Princeton for undergrad and I didn't, I was rejected from the Princeton humanities sequence. Instead, I took, they called it baby cube. Um, it was the same course, just it was only worth one credit, not two. Um, and P. Adam Sidney, who was teaching the spring semester, said, I took Proust off the syllabus because my biggest regret in life is I read Proust too young. Don't read Proust till you're 40. And more, my brother, I'm sorry, my sister and brother-in-law both teach at Great Hearts in San Antonio. It's a classical charter school. And so these kids that they teach, they're allowed to read Aristotle and, um, and C.S. Lewis, but they're not allowed to talk about Harry Potter class or superheroes. Um, and so my question for you is, uh, do you think that that age of a college freshman, that 18 year old age of freedom is important in this calculation or is six years old early enough? Is, you know, I, I don't think 40 years old is too late, but is six years old early enough? And at what point um, thinking about this outside of the university, but also into primary, secondary schools. At what point can the model you're describing really take the effect that you describe so powerfully in both of your books? I think, um, so I don't have experience in case of I think you should find me afterwards. She's sitting right there. Um, she's the person that I can see from where I'm sitting who's thought the most about this. I can say this, um, I have taught both adults, like people of various ages, mature learners, non-conventional learners, and I've taught undergraduates. And it is different. Um, and I like to say that, that it's it's different in a way that you wouldn't say only one of these groups should be reading this book. So when I was 18, and I'd see it happen all the time, I read something like Thucydides, and I think it's like an intellectual exercise. I don't understand that it's about real people who lived a real violent series of violent political experiences that um, are still going on all the time, all over the world. So I don't see it as real. And in a way that's bad. Like in a way I'm not old enough to read it. In a way you're never old enough to read it. Um, so I do think it's, uh, and then, in another way, I see with adult, with mature learners, they always see that it's real, but they don't always change in the way that 18 to 22 year olds. I mean, you, anyone of us who's been around colleges, the transformation is so intense and so incredible, and there's nothing like it. Uh, so I can say that much, um, and I, but I, I don't have experience with the. the Roosevelt has some young kids. I, I, have, I have two young kids. The oldest one is about to be five, to be five in a few weeks. And um, it is Arjuna. And sometimes people ask me, like, oh, you know, you love the classics. You're like reading Plato to me. I'm like, God, no. <laughs> Eric, Carl, me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, that's the idea that like the, the younger 
you expose them and get them into homework better. That doesn't seem right to me. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I do think that liberal education is appropriate for individuals of any age. This cultivating of this condition of freedom and self-determination that we have at every age. And there's something about progressive education and engaging the kids' interest and play and curiosity that that's liberal education. And you know, I have I'm not I don't know how to calibrate it and say you know what what what's it look like at sixth grade. Um, but I will say this, that it seems to me that the traditional college age from you know, 17, 18 to 22, 21, 22, 23, that that period in which the student is separating from the kind of the parental and societal tutelage, and it's beginning to organize a life for themselves to sort of order their, their goals, their sense of what is a good life or what kind of person do I want to be, this moment of the kind of early configuration of the adult person is especially is especially fertile. It's especially kind of ripe for the kind of reflection, provocation, intensity of let's call it loosely great books education. Uh, there's something kind of golden about that period that is that is really, really for the oh, I'm sorry, I see that someone just joined the line uh, and I have uh, decided that we should uh, take only one more question. We're going to take the next three questions. No, no, you can come, but no, I'm sorry. I, it was not a, it's not a it, okay, intervention of exclusion, but can we maybe take the three questions yeah. together yeah. and then you answer? Okay. Right. Would that be okay? So that we're supposed to stop now. So let's have the next three questions. And then you can choose. Thank you. My name is Trey. I'm a student at the King's College studying politics, philosophy, and economics. Uh, first off, thank you for sharing your thoughts and experiences. In my mind, many of these great books really established their footing, especially like classics and older classics in Europe. Um, by being the first of the way to convey information to a population who um, really wasn't able to receive some of these thoughts before. And now in the modern age, we consume a significant amount of information outside of books through other media forms. Furthermore, it can be argued that some ideas are even constrained by just words. By using other senses, we can communicate a lot more than just having text on a page. Do you think that in the near future, we could expect books to be obsolete? And what would be the extent of the loss if ever happened? Take the other question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys so much again. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I graduated from Yale and now work at the Warning Side Institute. Um, but I came to Yale from a really rural working class uh, area, working class community. And when I went to Yale, it was like someone had turned the lights on and then like uh, the whole world started to make so much more sense than I ever thought I could. And, and myself also uh, started to make more sense to me. And then um, going back home, it felt like uh, I was the only person who had had this type of experience. And I would like to hear if you guys could, uh, Zena and Roosevelt, both from your personal experiences, if you could talk a little bit about like what it means to uh, engage with in, in education with people who haven't had similar experiences or uh, don't even recognize um, the value of an education aside from the type of job that it can get. 
Thank you very much. I'm Tom O'Keefe. Um, and I had a question about Samuel Johnson and the test of time, which uh, came immediately to my mind uh, when you think about great books in the canon. What do you think of the test of time? Is it a legitimate measure of a great book? Are there other measures of a great book? And if it is a good measure, what is the appropriate amount of time that a book must pass be considered great? 12.2 years. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Jeff. Another must be that. <laughs> That's not true. We have one of the that we have some people who are That's very true. much alive. That's true. Uh, I think it's like the first question. I think you should take the second question. Okay. Uh, even though it's also close to my heart, I feel like. <laughs> um, but I think it would be a disaster for this book. Not because, I mean, here's what I think is crucial for learning. And I've been thinking up recently about um, before there were books, there were oral traditions. There were Homer, and many great books are in fact original oral traditions. Homer, Hebrew Bible. Um, and uh, in oral tradition, there are people who hold all of this stuff in themselves, in their bodies. And people hear it and people remember it. And it's it's part of who you are as a human being, either to be someone who can recite, be the bard who recites the, the tradition or the hearer who remembers and who uh, is a part of the story that's being told. So books in a way are worse because there's less that belongs to you. Everything's in the library, right? It's externalized, but at least it develops. We have these practices that develop inbuilt habits of mind and understanding things we've memorized and approaches to learning that are part but there has to be a takeaway in what you are as a human being in your being and uh my terror about the current moment is that it becomes a fleeting experience information is something along somewhere else and you take, you know, you you experience it, and then you spit it back out again, and it never becomes a part of who you are. Uh, so, for that reason, unless we have a revival of oral traditions, but I would totally, I think that would be wonderful. I think books are they are the way that we have cultivated ourselves, ourselves like our humanity, and I really don't understand what's on the horizon that's going to replace that. I, I find the prospect honestly. I, I try not to think about it too much. I get too, too anxious and scared. So, yeah, I'll say that. And then the test of time is is real, but it's not everything. You, could, I mean, I I had this experience. I was talking to Emmanuel beforehand. The Elena Bronte novels, which the author, whoever she is or he, is still alive. I read them and I was like. I have, this is a great book by Living Off. First time I'd ever had that experience. So I, I, I don't think it's all that, but it, it does do something. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think books are going to go away. Uh, for one thing, there is too, too much. It's too much of a repository already. Like human, human history, what we have been, how we got to where we are. There's so much of, of that that's in books and that's that's the meeting so 
as long as the past matters, books are going to matter. Um, but I do think that there are new ways of communicating and, you know, films, there are great films and art, visual art and architecture. These are their great, great works, right? I, uh, again, one thing I love about Colombia is that we don't just do great books. We also have a, an art humanities and a music humanities course in which people say not broads, these are words that are kind of major human significance and you try to understand them and grapple with them. So it's not just books, it's, it's just, you know, creations, human, human creation. But I think books are always going to be important and they will be, they will occupy a different position in the kind of universe of media that we inhabit. Uh, but they'll, I think they'll always be important. Um, the test of time is tricky because there's something kind of self-reinforcing about it, you know, Many people have read the books. I mean, more people will read the book. And um, there's a, a thing that accrues with it that it's hard to separate out from the book. So it's what it's not, what I think it, it is really, it's a, a very good criteria that we, uh, we have. The question about, uh, um, about people encountering the location who, may not come from the sorts of backgrounds that have traditionally valued and have access to this education. Obviously, it's very close to my heart, to my own experience, this kind of awakening that you describe, that you describe, you know, you're familiar to me. Um, Probably the fav my favorite, most meaningful thing that I do is every summer I teach high school students to bring to Columbia for a month long residential humanities experience reading political philosophy, the, the Freedom and Citizenship Program. They're all low income, first generation college kids. And part of what I love is that I see that happening all the time that I see these kids being awakened to a new way of looking at the world and understanding themselves. One of the things that, that surprises me all the time is how quickly it can happen and happen in the space, in the space of a month, in a, kind of in a way that is long lasting and permanently reorient them. Um, and how, you know, these kids, most of them are, our urban public school kids, and they read Hobbes, they read Plato, and it speaks to them. It 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 they see themselves. They there's recognition there. There is also with James Baldwin and Martin Luther King. Um, but I, I I love that, that 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 there is this capacity to see themselves in these thinkers that are really really alien. And one thing that, that I, know, I, I guess I, sometimes we speak about liberal education as what you do instead of a useful education. <laughs> like it's either or, you're either going to be an engineer or a banker or, or, a, or, a, or, a, or a computer programmer, or you're gonna be a PhD in English without a job um, or an art historian or something. Um, but it is, 
utterly not the case. The whole point is that a liberal education should be the foundation to whatever practical career. We need to organize college curricula in such a way that the opportunity cost of a liberal education is eliminated. That you don't have to sacrifice a career that is lucrative in order to have liberal. Um, and, and that is, uh, so, you know, one of the things I, I hope my students walk away with is the fact that whatever, they want to be doctors or, or economists or, or engineers, but that, that, that I'm not trying to convince them to be liberal arts me. I'm trying to awaken them to a way of thinking and viewing the world and approaching life with mind, whatever they do. I, I do just want to add one thing, uh, which is just to maybe it's good to end the case for the call to actually what what I'm seeing in the higher education elsewhere is um increasing barriers between um people who are not already set up to enter an education like that. Um, it's much, much harder now than it was when I was young. And that's that's a hard thing. You know, you know, we're not that old, you know, I mean we're still very young, but when we were young, things were different. Um, and it wasn't quite so difficult to go to the best schools that people can come from the best schools. So I, I just do think it's a matter of urgency for, for those of us who recognize that this kind of education really is for everyone to find ways to work within a system that is increasingly hostile to reaching them. Just find ways to break through the barriers, get that education. Thank you, and just with that, um, let's thank our panelists and moderators. Thank you so much. Thanks all for coming. If you enjoyed this and want more talks and seminars like it, um, please feel free to visit our website, morningsideinstitute.org. You can find more information there. You can sign up for our email list. In the meantime, the ample refreshments that you were promised are behind you, and I highly recommend that you take advantage of them. Thanks again to all three of you. Have a wonderful evening.